Anyway, uh, while Pastor Lucas is at my church uh, over in Mount Prospect and I'm here, uh, we were talking about what we would preach at each other's respective churches, and he just encouraged me to just preach the last sermon I preached at Embassy, which I'm currently going through the book of Genesis right now, and one of the themes throughout Genesis or structures of the outline of the book, if you've ever studied Genesis uh, more thoroughly, is that 10 different times out the book, it says the the generations of or the story of, and then it gives the list of all of these descendants or genealogies, and it happens as kind of marks throughout Genesis. And so the sermon series has been called the story of, and then you fill in the blank with whatever that passage is being taught. So that's what we've been doing at Embassy Church. And so you're getting the story of, fill in the blank, marriage. So when you hear that today's message is on marriage, are some of you discouraged by that? Oh no, not in one of those sermons. Like, I'm single, or I'm widowed, or I'm not happily married, or I want to be married, or maybe you're just tired of hearing about marriage. It's in the news recently a lot. We've got all kinds of Supreme Court cases talking about marriage in recent news. What kind of message is this going to be? When I think of marriage, I often think of something that happened in the 1980s. It goes kind of like this. Mowage. It's what brings us together today. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the princess bride. When I think of the story of marriage, that word reminds me of the princess bride. Now, those words may not seem like the most profound words, especially when they're pronounced that way, but when you listen closely, the man officiating that wedding says, Mowage, this blessed arrangement, a dream within a dream. Now, is marriage really a blessed arrangement, a dream within a dream? What's interesting about that film is that it was in the 1980s, but since the 1970s and on, in our country at least, I'd started at 1969 when our country decided that there would be this thing called no-fault divorce, which means you can get divorced for any reason. just doesn't matter. used to be a lot more difficult to get divorced. Since that point, marriages are kind of on the down. They are not a blessed arrangement. They are not a dream within a dream. Seems one-third less people in the U.S. are getting married, according to recent statistics I've found. Those people who are married are now currently saying, more than ever, the lowest number are actually happy in their marriages. So less marriages, unhappier marriages... And naturally, since 1969, there have been way more people getting divorced. Divorce has tripled since 1969. So should we be surprised that in recent years, marriage itself is continually being redefined? And I say that specifically. I think in 1969, we had a first redefinition of marriage, as we're about to see. Marriage is not just something you can easily say, well... We've fallen out of love. Let's go get married to someone else. That's what no-fault divorce did. It redefined what marriage is. And we've continued to see redefinitions since then. Which brings us back to the Princess Bride. 
Marriage is what brings us here together today. The topic of it, the study of it in God's word. I do want to argue that it is a blessed arrangement and that it can be a dream within a dream. Blissful and sweet. And so for that, I want to kind of prep us for this morning's message. My hope is really not so much to talk about the world out there, or even for some of you that aren't married or want to be married or are single, think, well, this has nothing to do with me. I'm just going to tune out. Or if maybe you're feeling guilty because your marriage isn't the way you want it to be. My hope for today's message is that as we see in God's word some truths from Genesis chapter 2, we will see some of the beauty of marriage. We certainly, hopefully, will be challenged by the call, but I hope all of us, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, we will see its ultimate design, what it was meant for, what it was made for, and how that will affect all of us in this room, married, single, divorced, widowed, happily or unhappily married. That's my hope this morning. Jesus' marriage with his church is the ultimate aim, and it is great. So to do that, let's turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. That can be conveniently found on page 2 in these black Bibles. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. I think someone can get you a black Bible. I think you'll be helped to see that my remarks this morning are coming hopefully right from the flow of what God is saying in his word and not just tips on marriage from Pastor Phil. Rather, truths, eternal words from God himself. That's my hope. Three points that I would outline this morning's message, the priority of marriage, the permanence of marriage, and the passion in marriage. So three simple P's to remember this morning's outline. Priority, permanence, and passion. We'll start in verse 24 and read verse 25. Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked And we're not ashamed. First, priority. The first thing we see in this passage is that a man shall leave his father and his mother. If we pause right there with that phrase alone, we will see, I think, the priority in marriage. A man will leave his father and his mother. Now, if you hear that today, I'm not sure too many of us are startled by those words. Okay, so a guy leaves his mom and dad's house, he gets married, and they move into a new apartment or house. Whoop-de-doo. But let's not read the Bible as 21st century Americans. Let's read the Bible like the first hearers would have heard it. I think that's the best way to study the Bible is, how did God's word come when he first spoke it to those people? And then let's see how that translates to us. If we hear it as they first heard it, The first thing we would need to realize is that in the ancient world, one of the most important relationships and your highest loyalty whatsoever would be to your parents, to mom and dad. I don't know what your cultural upbringing or value systems are, but when I look around the world, I don't see in 21st century American mom and dad and honoring them as ultimate allegiance, the ultimate taboo. I mean, maybe some, but overall, not overwhelmingly the case here. Then take the word that's here, leave his father and his mother, and know that this word can also be translated as abandon or forsake. 
It was often used in the Old Testament scriptures to talk about abandoning a house and leaving it completely empty or a city that was desolate. This word was used to talk about abandoning the poor when God is talking about judgment. If you have abandoned the poor, you have forsaken them before judgment is coming on you, Israel. And this word is also used to talk about Israel forsaking God and the covenant that they made with him. So insert those ideas of this word contextually in that context. I think this might have been a little startling. The first book of the Bible, as you start opening up the first words, as you're introduced to this idea of man and then woman and then marriage, the first thing you hear about marriage is that a man will abandon his father and his mother. He will forsake his father and his mother. What I think this speaks to is the priority of marriage. That from the very beginning, God wants us to understand that this fundamental unit of society, this fundamental relationship, is first and foremost. If you are married, your wife, if you're a man, your husband, if you're a woman, they take precedent over every other earthly relationship, over mom and dad, over work relationships, and over children. I want us to apply those three briefly. First, your spouse, if you're married, takes priority over your mom and dad, over your in-laws. This may seem like a simple idea, but when you start thinking about the issues that marriages face, it's two family values clashing together in a marriage. And sometimes, or maybe a lot of times, someone's values don't match with the other person's values. And sometimes those aren't sinful things. It might be, well, we're going to homeschool or we're going to public school. Is one right or was one wrong? Well, we grew up doing it this way. That's the way we do it because that's what mom and dad did. Do you see how that starts to clash? How we handle finances, how much we're going to save for this or that, or where we're going to live in this community or that. And someone has this preference and value from the way they were grown, and someone has this preference and value. Marriage is a starting over of a whole new value system, a whole new rules and regulations for how you're going to operate. It's not just, well, that's the way we did it with mom and dad. And so it's as if you've never left the home if you continue to live off of mom and dad's influence. This is extremely important if you're going to help young married people in the church. If you have people that are your children and you want to help raise them, realize you need to eventually let them go. And you can't be constantly influencing every decision that you make and micromanage them. They need to leave their father and their mother. They need to make a new relationship And it should have priority over the others. Another area is work. And the reason I bring this one up, particularly men might struggle with making their work relationships or their their love for their job a priority over their spouse. I remember when I was early on in marriage, I negatively saw the effects of this error. So I chose ministry, that was my work, and I thought this was good, this was to glorify God, I'm serving God and his people. But I was neglecting my wife, I was abandoning my wife for the sake of work. Every time I was saying yes to another ministry thing or another activity, I was saying no to my wife and leaving her home alone to care for our young children, and she was struggling 
under my decisions to continue to say yes to more work, 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 and no to her. You know, I think one of the things we need to realize is this idea of empty nesters. If you want to live in a marriage where you eventually say goodbye to your children and then they head off, you send them out. There's this term called empty nesters. You don't have any children left. But if you don't invest in your marriage, then you're going to be more empty than just having no children in the home. The majority of your marriage, if you have a long enough life, should be with your spouse and not just with your children. Which brings us to our third application. Parents can easily look to their children for their main companionship or fulfillment. You know, a recent study was done to try and observe what sort of parents abuse their children. Did you know that they found that it wasn't parents that abandoned their children, it's parents that love their children too much? Put too much weight on the relationship they have with their child. Too much pressure for them to perform so that when they do not perform a certain way, then the parents get so irate and lose control and angry with them. Do you see how smothering a child or finding all of your hope and fulfillment in a child could lead you to do things you would never think of? I'm sure most of those parents would never think, oh yeah, I'm going to be a child abuser one day. But the error of not finding companionship in your spouse first and then trying to find that in your children could lead to all kinds of errors. So I said this sermon is going to have applications for all of us. So some of you here, you're not married. Maybe you're single. Maybe you want to be married. Maybe you're a widow. Realize that earthly marriages happen when a man leaves his father and his mother. But the marriage that all marriages are pointing to, the marriage of God and his people, the marriage between heaven and earth, the marriage between Jesus and his church, that marriage, that marriage happened when the father left the son. So if earthly marriages are formed by the man leaving his father and his mother, realize that the ultimate marriage of marriages was established when the Son was forsaken by the Father. When Jesus died on the cross, do you remember those words? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me, left me, forsaken me? And the reason was why God did that was because Jesus so identified with, so prioritized his bride, the church, more so than any other relationship. That same God who abandoned his son did not do that eternally. It was only three days later that he would raise him from the dead so that all of us, whether we're single, we're married, whether we're widowed, whether we're happily married, all of us in this room today can have a picture of forsaking, an illustration that when we leave our earthly families and make a new family, Ten times more, a thousand times more. When you leave your earthly relationships and say, I choose Jesus as my priority over every other relationship, that's what it means to become a Christian. You have a new set of priorities, a new set of values, a new set of rules to live by. Is that describing you today? 
This is fundamental in what it means to be a Christian, is to be converted. Every Christian is a converted Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who's just born a Christian by their mother's womb. We're born of God as we are married to him, as we say yes to his invitation, as he metaphorically bows down on one knee and says, will you marry me? And we say, I do. When that happens, a new relationship is formed, a new priority. I want you to think about this question. What more would God the Father need to do to prove to you how much he prioritizes you? Could he give any more than what he already gave? Could he forsake any more than what he already forsook? What else does Jesus and God the Father need to do to show how much he wants this marriage to work? To fight for it. To die for it. That's the priority of marriage. That's our first point. Let's move on to the second point. The permanence of marriage. Comes in our next phrase, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast to his wife. If you forsake your father and your mother, you're supposed to hold fast to your wife and never, ever leave her or him. The word hold fast used elsewhere in Scripture is used to describe scales that are stuck like glue on a crocodile's belly or back. Get that image in your mind. Anybody got some crocodile wrestling experience? I don't, so I'm kind of curious. I'm assuming that this means they're stuck on there pretty hard. Another image that could be used is that of a welder or a solderer. Two things becoming one and then being permanently fastened together. That's the picture we should have when we see this word hold fast. Glued and stuck together is a very literal way to read this phrase, hold fast. When talking about marriage, do you know who said, what God has joined together, let no man separate? That's Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, when talking and being asked about divorce and remarriage issues, he gives those very poignant lines. What God has joined together, let no man separate. You know, I think Jesus gets this, not just because when you read Matthew 19, he's quoting our text here in, Ma- in Genesis chapter 2, but I think he's getting this idea of what God joins together from the, the context of chapter 2. When you look at chapter 2, you notice that Adam is asleep. He is passive. He is not doing anything in the garden. God is the one who is forming and making a bride for him. He then brings the bride to Adam. Some have pictured this as the first wedding in in human history. So who's the father of the bride who brings the bride to the groom? God. Look at the text itself. It says right here in chapter 2, Verse 22, and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into woman, and then he brought her to the man. So think of it metaphorically as if God is walking the bride down the aisle. And then as man sees this woman, and as they are united in one flesh union of marriage, it's as if the father of the bride 
is kind of like in my situation, where if I marry my two little daughters in the future, and they ask me to be both the father and the officiant, I'll walk my children down the aisle, and then I will turn around, and then I will pronounce them man and wife. God did all of it. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is the doing of God, is the initiative of God, it is the idea from God, it is not from the judges and magistrates anywhere, anytime. And so therefore we should conclude and apply to us that marriage is first and foremost about staying together in this covenant union more so than it is about staying in love. It is not about being physically attracted to one another forever. It is not about being compatible or having things in common. Often the reasons people give, well, we fell out of love. It's about keeping a promise that what God has brought together, let no man separate. Oftentimes, young men, as I've done college ministry, all through my ministry experiences, have asked, Pastor Phil, how important is physical attraction for marriage? You know what I ask them back? It kind of depends. How long do you want to be married? Do you know what I mean by that? Do you want to be married 50, 60 years if the Lord would allow? Or just the 10 or 20 so when the skin stills tight and there's no wrinkles and there's no issues going on with the body anymore or the hair's still on the head and you can kind of go on and on. Like we change physically. If marriage is about physical attraction, well then once they hit their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, at what point do you say, all right, well, forget this marriage. If marriage is about just being compatible with one another and having things in common, well, what do you do with the, the mystery of marriage and that the moment you say, I do, you're forever changing one another until you die? You will never. Stanley Harawas is a, a professor in, in Duke uni, uh, University, and he has, he has pointed out that when you get married, you will never marry the perfect person because the moment you marry them, you change them. And they change you. And you continue refining each other for better, for worse, till death do us part. The person that you're married or sitting next to now is not the same person you married then. And so don't be surprised if they've changed. They're going to change. They should change. Hopefully for better, sometimes for worse. But just because someone changes does not mean that we stop staying faithful to our promise. So therefore, I encourage all of you, whether you're single or you're married, fight for your marriages. I'm not sure what your church's views are about divorce and its provisions, but even the most conservative or most liberal kind of churches, a lot of them agree that there's only a couple different reasons to get divorce. It's not just any reason whatsoever. Oh, well, they don't look as attractive anymore. Well, we've fallen out of love. We don't have anything in common anymore. Things are hard. I encourage singles, pray for and help protect marriages. You might be in a situation where you have a, a, a married friend and you as a single person, you could speak truth into a married couple's life and have that unique privilege and opportunity. Will you fight for their marriage? Will you encourage them? 
The reason why all this matters, we have a, a scripture reading from Deuteronomy 31. In Deuteronomy 31, notice the phrase in here, he will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the promise that Moses gives to Joshua as they're about to head into the promised land at the end. So imagine this, you've got at the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 2.24, a man will leave and forsake his father and his mother and he will cling to and he will hold fast to his wife permanently. On the other end of the five books of Moses, Moses tells this to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do you know why it's important for us to fight for marriages? Because our marriages are a picture of this, of the God who will never leave you nor forsake you. The worst thing about divorce is not the implications of the kids or the court fees or the disputes and issues people have about the money or possessions that they're fighting for. No, no, the worst thing about marriage is that it is painting the opposite picture of this. The God of the universe wants to create marriages in such a way that marriages will picture his union with his bride. So listen to these words of Tim Keller. This is out of his very good book I'd encourage on marriage, the the meaning of marriage, I think. But Tim Keller on marriage. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he did not think to himself, am I giving myself to you because you are so attractive? No, he was in agony. He looked down at us and he saw us denying him, abandoning him, betraying him. And then in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said to the father, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely. He loved us to make us lovely. In the greatest act of love in human history, in the worst marriage possible, Jesus stayed. When you look at those nails on the cross, that's commitment. That's being bound and holding fast to your promise. That's staying when things get tough. Oh, they got tough. Really tough. As he was spit in the face. As he was rejected by his own people. As he comes back to his hometown in Nazareth and they want to throw him over a cliff. On and on the rejection, the difficulty. But he stayed. That's why this point is so important. It is a picture of the gospel. The ultimate picture of staying is Jesus Christ on the cross. Some of you might be feeling like, oh man, Pastor Phil, you don't really know me very well and you don't know that my marriage is killing me. If I stay in this marriage, it's going to kill me. In God's case, it literally did kill him to stay in this marriage. He literally did die on the cross. We were the spouse from hell. Just meditate today on the fact that he had every reason and way better reason than you could ever dream of to bail on this marriage. But he didn't. So I want to encourage all of us to think about how our marriages here on this earth are bigger and more important than our
happiness and joy. The permanence of marriage flows out of our new priority with our spouse. And we should find the courage and the strength and the motivation to stay in marriages, even difficult marriages. Not abusive ones. Those people deserve to go to jail. Domestic violence is not cool. The church should stand up with local officials to remove domestic violence. So women, if you're being battered or abused, I'm not talking about staying like Jesus stayed on the cross and just keep getting beat. We should obey the laws of the land and that man or woman, if there's abuse in the situation, they should be restrained. So with that little caveat, the strength and courage to stay in a marriage is knowing that when you look to the cross, you realize that Jesus stayed in his. Third and final point, the passion in marriage. So we've looked first at its priority. We've looked at its permanence. And now let's finally see the passion in marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Passion or intimacy. What does this idea of one flesh mean? Some people read the next verse, verse 25. They became one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so they quickly conclude it just means sex. So passion. Oh, I see where you're going, Pastor Phil. Passion. Oh. No, it's, it's much more than that. It's, it's not just physical intimacy. It's not just sex. To become one person or one flesh is more than the physical act. And to prove this point, I want us to turn our Bibles, or you can just look it up on the screen here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is going to quote our text, and it's going to show us very clearly what this one flesh union means. It's not less than physical sexual intimacy here, but it's much, much more. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, Paul's quoting our verse in just a moment, and he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then we take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? See, now he's got on his mind in this whole section here sexual immorality, starting in chapter 5 through chapter 6 and 7. He's talking about sex, he's talking about marriage in this whole little section of 1 Corinthians. So notice where he goes here. You are a member of the body of Christ. Shall a member of the body of Christ become a member, join with a prostitute. So he's talking about physical intimacy. But look at verse 16 and following. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, two will become one flesh. There's our text, Genesis chapter 2. Two will become one flesh. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So it's more than just a physical act. You see that? They become one spirit as well. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the one who sins sexually, they sin against their own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So here's one example of the New Testament looking at our text and defining for us what one flesh means. It means physical intimacy, but it means much more than that. When we look at one more text, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. 
the quintessential text on marriage, the The passage, I think, used at a lot of weddings, rightly so. It is a glorious passage on marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to see one more example of the New Testament authors interpreting for us one flesh union. And notice, he doesn't talk about physical intimacy at all here. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies... He who loves his wife loves himself. Let me read that more slowly again. Husbands, love your wife as you love your own body. If you love your wife, you are loving yourself. And then he argues, whoever hates their own flesh, we take care of it, we nourish it, we cherish it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. See, there's our text. But he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We could kind of summarize this one flesh idea. Think about physical spiritual, emotional, every category you could compartmentalize, two people become united as one. That's why he can argue this way and say, husbands, now, will you deny yourself food for weeks on end? No. Of course not. You'll take care of yourself. If you had an injury, would you just sit there and be like, well, I'm just going to let this thing bleed out. You would take care of yourself. So therefore, every time you love your wife, you are taking care of yourself because she's a part of you. You are one together. This is much more than just physical acts of sexual intimacy. This is the uniting of two people as one, so much so that he doesn't even reference the sexual physical intimacy here. And he says this is a deep and profound mystery. It is much bigger than just two physical bodies coming together. C.S. Lewis says this is why physical intimacy outside of marriage will not work. He compares it to licking or tasting food without swallowing or digesting. Get that picture in your mind. Imagine sitting around the Thanksgiving meal. Somebody grabs a roll and just licks it. Mashed potatoes, put it in the mouth. Spit it back onto the spoon. It would be absurd, right? All of you would think, that's gross, that's weird, you're not invited next year. All kinds of things are going through your mind in that moment. But do you get the idea of what C.S. Lewis is saying? Physical sexual intimacy was made for a deeper union. Therefore, physical intimacy should help inspire, deepen the physical, emotional, spiritual union. If it's done outside of that, then it's not doing what it was made for. It's like licking bread and then putting it back down and not digesting it. That's why sex should only happen in the context of marriage. It wasn't made to be done however we please, whenever we please. And you will feel empty and hungry for something if you don't do it in the context of a marriage where the physical union is matched with the spiritual and emotional. 
As we've gone through these three points, the priority, the permanence, and the passion in marriage, I wonder how many of you have started to feel exposed, convicted, challenged. I'll be frank, I have been. Even as I preach this, I'm reminded of my own failures as a husband. I even gave you a reminder of my own failures to prioritize my wife over my job or ministry. What do we do with this? You know, the passage here ends in verse 25 by talking about being naked and unashamed. You ever wonder what that's about? I think it has everything to do with chapter 3. In chapter 3, the idea of nakedness runs through the chapter. When they start eating of the fruit that they were forbidden to eat of, do you remember what happens? Their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. So they covered themselves up. They hid from God. And when God comes to them, he says, Adam, where are you? He says, I was hiding because I was naked. The interesting thing about these words is that the chapter 2 naked is different than the chapter 3 word for naked. And every time the chapter 3 word for naked is used, it's used in the context of God giving judgment. I was naked. Whereas chapter 2 naked is like little kids frolicking around that don't care. They're unabashedly naked. We're unashamed. We don't care. No conscience. But in chapter 3, they sense the weight of the judgment of God. But here's the thing I don't know if a lot of us have ever noticed. How does God deal with their nakedness? They tried to cover themselves up, which is what we normally try and do. We always try and fix ourselves. We love self-help stuff. We try and make up for our own sins. When we feel guilty, we're like, okay, I'm going to do something tomorrow to make up for my sins yesterday. We're just putting fig leaves over ourselves. You need God to cover your nakedness. So if you look at this next passage of Scripture, the way Genesis 3 ends, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Who made the garments to cover their nakedness? God did. Their self-help efforts, not good enough. But here's the question I have for you. When you look at this passage, do you ever wonder, skin? Garments of skin? What is that? Seems like almost every scholar I've read has agreed that it is animal skin. If Genesis is the introduction to the five books of Moses and the center of the books of Moses are the temple and the animal sacrifices that prefigure the sacrifice of Jesus. Could it be already in Genesis chapter 3 you have the first animal sacrifice where God skins an animal and clothes them in their nakedness. A sacrifice had to be made to cover up that shame and nakedness. And so if you're here today and you're feeling naked, the bad kind. You're feeling exposed. Don't put on fig leaves. Let God cover over you. 
through Jesus Christ. He has already done it, actually. Sometimes one of the things when we feel sinful is that we start to feel like we need to pay for our sins. We, we beat ourselves. We afflict ourselves. If you are united to Jesus Christ, then you are united to him in his death, Romans 6 says. And you're united to him in his resurrection. You are united. Everything that is bad about you is canceled out by the goodness that is given to you by Jesus. In the 1990s, a Syracuse University professor named Rosaria Butterfield became one of the youngest tenured professors and one of the biggest activists for the LGBT community. She told Christians at one point, after her conversion, by the way, she told Christians that she was the enemy. She was the anti-Christian. She hated, like, One of the reasons she became so popular was this letter she wrote against promise keepers and their stance for traditional marriage. That like made her a big deal. Well, in God's providence, he brought her to faith in Jesus. Both of her two recent books, one that tells the story of her conversion and then another one of reflections after her conversion are are marvelous. I encourage you to read either of them. Rosaria Butterfield. When I was reading this recently, a couple weeks ago, this line really, really touched my heart, and I want to share it with you. She said, Because of now becoming a Christian, my identity is solely in Jesus Christ. And so I want to set the record straight of what fuels my resolve in deep and daily repentance to God. I sit up in the morning and I say to my accuser, Yes. You are right about the depths of my sin. Yet, in fact, you are more right than you would ever know. I am guilty. And I am guilty of so much more. And you are right that God's punishment for what I have done is to deserve death. But here's what you don't know. You don't seem to understand that Romans 6 says that I have united not just with his death, but also his resurrection. Do you know what this means? Because of union with Jesus Christ. I was on trial that day when Jesus was on trial. I was taken into custody. I was spat on. I was stripped naked. I was thrashed with metal whips by Pontius Pilate. I was tortured. I was crucified. I was castigated to hell. If you're feeling at all naked or guilty or exposed and like the shame of that makes you feel like I deserve punishment. That's right. But by faith, look to the cross of Jesus. All punishment has been done. There is no need for you to beat yourself up for another second. Jesus took enough beatings. It would be making little of or a mockery of the cross if you think you need to add another lashing to what Jesus already did. Christians, To be a Christian is to be married to Jesus, united with him. Everything that is his is now yours. I don't know what you had when you got married. When I got married, I was 19 years old. I had a few dollars in my pocket, a very empty bank account, some college debt, and a very bad paying job. 
My wife, on the other hand, was much wealthier, came from a nice family, was a good inheritance to her name, a good, well-paying job, and a nice car. The moment I said I do, do you know what happened? Cash flow. Her bank account and mine became one. I wasn't poor anymore. All of my debt was now wiped out because of her riches. Friends, don't you see? A thousand times greater, a million times greater is the marriage between sinners and the Lord Jesus Christ. You were empty. You had nothing to your name. You had lots of debt. But when you say, I do, Jesus Christ is my Lord, cash flow. Not physical cash. I'm not a prosperity preacher. The cash flow of Jesus' righteousness has been deposited into your account. He who knew no sin became sin so that you would become the righteousness of God. This is what marriage is all about. This is the hope for all of us, whether you're married, single, divorced, happily or unhappily married. This is why we should care about marriage as a church. I think one of the greatest faults that we might be potentially struggling with in this day is talking about what we are against in marriage rather than talking about what we are for. We are for this. This picture of the God who came down from heaven, left, he left his father, was forsaken by his father, died on a cross, exchanged places to be united with you so that through his death and resurrection, you could be united in his resurrection. And now today, you have an inheritance that cannot be corrupted or touched or done away with. You're rich in Jesus. Let's pray together.